What I've learned personally as I've gone through the book of Hebrews is how stunningly central the new covenant is and how big it is, how broad it is. It's big enough to contain really literally all the cosmos and the finished work of Jesus, but it's also big enough to contain our lives. And a couple of things that I've started saying since I I learned and went through this is God built the redemptive plan with us in mind. Now, that doesn't sound like that great a revelation, but when you think about it, the very things we need are what he planned for. Our inability to hear, our stubbornness, our obstinance, our ignorance, our propensity to to fall away, to sin, particularly our propensity to believe false things about him and about us. And, And all my life, and most of the people I know, we grew up thinking that if you fell victim to one of those things, that there was a holiness problem with that. There was a separation problem with that. I had the privilege of sitting and talking to somebody who'd been going through some kind of disciplinary things a little bit in the Lord. Uh, and and I had been praying for them and hadn't seen them in a little while. And when we get, had a chance to talk this week, I said, what's the big thing the Lord showed you? What's the one big thing the Lord showed you? And, and it was described to me an encounter that they had. And the outcome of that encounter was there's no separation between us don't think there is. I went like Yahoo inside big time and a little bit outside because I think that's the lie that kills us. Let me move that mic between you and me, Tim. It's just in the wrong spot. I'll get it out of the way. (laughs) We'll put it right there. Sorry, Riley, you'll probably have to get a new preset. (laughs) Oops, now it's between me and Jen. That would be terrible. Let's sing over here. There you go. So... You know, these are the kind of things that I'm sensing happening, and I see this as a whole. So tonight, as we go through the last chapter of Hebrews, we are into some very practical, practical stuff. But I want you to understand that that it is no less central and special in the covenant. And that's what it's talking about. So I want to start with just a tiny bit of review, but... If you want to throw a title on this thing, in my heart, it's the New Covenant in Action, or it's your personal impact in the New Covenant on the world around you. Okay? All right, hopefully that'll make sense in a minute. So let's back up a little bit to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to review starting around uh, 22, I think. So in Revelation, I mean, in Hebrews chapter 12, we saw a revelation that says, rather, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem, to a myriad of angels, and to a full gathering and an assembly of the firstborn enrolled in the heavens, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous who have been perfected, and to Jesus, mediator of the new covenant, and to a blood for sprinkling that bespeaks something better than that of Abel. So see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks doing so from the heavens. Okay. The heaven to earth concept that that we came to understand a little bit in Hebrews is that the new covenant has opened up to us, not will, has opened up to us. Contact with heaven. Now, we've been learning some stuff the last few years, uh, some of us even longer than that, about prophecy, about ascensions, about the ability to see into the heavens, about the ability to hear the Lord from heavens. And these are all just a manifestation, one form or another, and it doesn't really bother me what your form of it is, you know. I I remember the first time I learned about prophecy. I remember the first time I learned about speaking a mystery when I was speaking in tongues. 
I remember the first time that I had like an open vision kind of thing. And so all of this is simply a manifestation. It's possible because of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection and how that's now the governing principle of the new covenant. And so it's not something that only super spiritual people do. It's something that's open to every person on the planet because of the work that Jesus did. So we come to this, and you could think then, because if you think back to what we looked at in the New Testament, New Covenant, we looked at Jesus being the final word of the Father. We looked at creation uh, being released into the care of human beings again, kind of like it talks about in Romans 8, there in, in Hebrews 2, it talks about that. We talked about better promises, better relationships, better authority than the angels. We talked about a covenant in which God declares, I will be their God, and you will be my people. Now, you're not his people because you perform properly. You're his people because he said so. Just like the world exists because he said so. We get into faith, and that, that's, that's a proven point. It's by faith that we know that the world came from what was not. Well, when God makes a declaration about his possession of you and you belonging to him, it's not based on the sum of its parts. It's based on the declaration of his authority and the love in his heart. So this is what we're looking at. And you would think, okay, man, this is getting good. I can see into heaven. I can interact with the heavenlies. The angels are on my side serving uh, as ministering spirits of fire. Jesus has gone into heaven for me. Uh, He's poured out his blood one time. God greets my transgressions with forgiveness and mercy. And he remembers my sin no more. That's enough to go, woo! He remembers my sin no more. Yeah, party, party. So there's so much going for us in this new covenant, so much going for us, that I think it shocked us a little bit when we got into the second half of, of Hebrews chapter 10, and it started saying things like, so don't don't keep sinning. And it shocked us a little bit when it said, you know, that the Father disciplines those He loves, and He treats them like sons. So what I learned out of that, and I want to remind you guys, because we've had some good conversation about it, One of the dynamics that has come out of this last uh, three months or so of study of the New Covenant and study of Hebrews as the presentation of that New Covenant, the declaration of it in the the New Testament, is that the things that God did through Christ, the place that we have received, the place that we now come to, is a finished work. You are who Jesus has made you. But, there is still a process to know it. There is still a process to live like it. We're moving into being a full manifestation of who we are. And that's where things like discipline come in and that kind of stuff. But it's for sons. Remember, God said, they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. I'm going to write my law or place my law in their hearts and write it in their minds. We're lacking nothing of his revelation of righteousness. We lack nothing of, of being being identified as his family. It is from that place of assurance and security that he says, uh, in this covenant, no man's going to have to tell his neighbor, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. And then all of a sudden, you see erupting out of the scriptures, like in first in the first part of the Gospel of John, where it says, and, that, and the life of the word became uh, the light of men, and that light enlightens every heart. 
Then you have a reason to understand the magnitude of Pentecost because Peter described what happened when the Spirit fell on them and they began speaking in other languages. Uh, he said, this is what uh, Joel prophesied about when he said, in that day, I will pour my Spirit out on all flesh. For most of my Christian life, my flesh was something to suppress or to hide or to fight against. Now, I know that it can still require some resistance, but what my flesh really is, if I really understand it, that ugly, the, the, the capacity in me for the ugly stuff, it's, it's like one of those laser spots on a, a laser-guided missile. The Holy Spirit is poured out on my flesh for transformation, for discipline. And so there's nothing in me to be afraid of by me in this covenant. Let me say that again. There's nothing in you to be afraid of by you in the new covenant. That's how big it is. That's how personal it is. And so it's, it's pretty easy to get caught up in the, in the heavenly grandeur of the new covenant because we're talking about Jesus and the consummation of the ages and blood being poured out in the heavenly altar. We're talking about, uh, coming to, to a heavenly Jerusalem, to a, the, the cloud of witnesses, running our race with our eyes fixed on Jesus as the, as the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, spiritually, it's monstrous. And it is. And we should know it. But it works out in just a super beautiful way. So here's what I want to go on. The next, the next little passage in this review back in the early part I just read is we have come, not we are coming. We have come to all of this heavenly spectacular. And therefore, receiving, look at the tense, receiving an unshakable kingdom. Yesterday, one of the characteristics of Thursday for you, all 24 hours of it, is that you were receiving the heavenly kingdom. It was being poured out and administered by the Holy Spirit. It is funded by the will of the Father. It is built around the blood of Jesus and his presence in your life. Today, today, we are receiving that kingdom. And guess what? is going to be a big part of tomorrow. Receiving an unshakable kingdom. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you watch uh, any YouTube videos or any of the political news or either the conventions, you realize that it's a huge advantage knowing that we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. Because the culture around us doesn't testify to that. And the news doesn't speak about it. But we are. And the kingdom has Jesus as its king, has the Father's love as the emperor of that kingdom, has the Holy Spirit as the regent that is bringing that reality to us every day. And we have clouds and clouds of witnesses that are cheering us on. We have the spirits of, of righteous people made perfect. We have angels gathering for celebration. I, I think I'll read, I hope that's this one. Is that in this translation? I'm reading from David Bentley Hart. Uh, let's see here. Um, rather, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriad of angels, and to a full gathering of the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. 
It's N.T. Wright's translation that talks about the angels being gathered in a, in a for a festival or for a celebration. It's pretty cool. So this is what's going on. And our response to this is worship. This reality allows us to worship. We can sing and dance, and, and, and I can't do, well, I can sing a little, can't dance much. But I can do that, you know. And that's a part of our response to God. So is being on your knees with your heart and tears rolling down your face for the majesty and the goodness of the Father. So is the other night, Monday, when we were here, and we were engaging in those frequencies. And I don't know how many of you, how many of you were here Monday night? Okay. Uh, one of the highlights for me was when um, the little gal was brought up here and, and said, okay, so I want you to, I want you to release the sound. And she started off like every one of us would start off, super timid, and, but obedient. But it wasn't very long until she was standing up at a mic right there. Oh! She was about 13 years old, and she was peeling the paint off the walls, releasing stuff to her generation. I was over there receiving it and begging God, open the door to the hearts of these young people. Open, uh, give us a role in it, Lord. But it was beautiful. I mean, it was seriously beautiful. And you watched the kind of start out, and then you saw her transformed into a vessel, a trumpet for the Lord. That's life. That's life. I got up the next morning, I was journaling about it, and thanking the Lord for it. And he brought to mind a passage of Scripture out of Galatians that's pretty unusual. Most people just read over it without thinking about what it says. But Paul's talking about his ministry, and he was talking a little bit about his conversion and everything. He said, when it pleased... God, who set me apart from my mother's wombs in Galatians 1, around 14 or 15. When it pleased God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, to reveal His Son in me. Not to me. In me. That's what we saw in that little girl. That's incredible. That's the nature of the kingdom. That's the nature of the, of the kingdom and the government that is releasing that kingdom in our lives on the earth day after day is the government of the new covenant through the blood of Jesus. So anyway, pretty cool stuff. Got to me very much. So here's, here's, I'm going to walk quickly. Oh, and I, I wanted to let you know that we're all going to get out on time because I put the clock up this week. See it back there? I can see. So we're going to run through chapter 13, and, and I want you to literally absorb and, and look at and be struck by the immense down-to-earth relational practicality that is the goal of this covenant. In spite of talking about heavenly places and beasts and, and angels and outpourings of blood on heavenly altars, lasting, active, and an impacting culture of love. We need that so desperately. Hospitality that connects us to the kingdom of heaven. You'll see what I mean by that in just a second. Identification with the struggles of our neighbors. The esteem and sanctification of marriage and family. Freedom from false security, love of money, and fear of people. And engaging spiritual life in place of religious life. And finally, peace that flows not from circumstances finally coming together, but rather it flows from the resurrected King of glory. That is a big deal. Because that's a foundation that isn't going to get out of order day after tomorrow. Okay, here's the first one. 
Let brotherly love abide. What is the goal of this spectacular giving of the kingdom, declaration of being the people of God, this amazing uh, light being sown in us, the forgiveness of God being extended, the, the sins being forgotten, Christ establishing a kingdom and a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. What is the objective of that? That, that family love, that brotherly love can abide in us, can settle in and stay. The, the word abide, uh, is, it talks about like moving to a place to settle, not just visiting. It talks about something that takes root. Brotherly love, abide. Now, that's a pretty simple statement. So to, to really plumb the depth of it, because those are not hard words, to plumb the depth of it, you have to start thinking about, about the uh, mountain that we come to. You have to start thinking about that myriad of angels. What are they for? You have to start thinking about the spirits of righteous made perfect and that cloud of witnesses that we run before. This is more than just having affection for a few people. This is a culture that the new covenant establishes and protects and releases where all of the vitriol and the hatred that we're exposed to in this political season and the, the, the crazy rhetoric where it can all be overcome by the settled-in state of this love. Now, you have to probably appeal to some other places to start to see the riches of it. you got to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and realize that it's patient, it's kind. Then you have to go to 1 John and realize, oh my gosh, God is love, like we talked about last week. So what this is, is God abiding in us. That's what it says in 1 John, right? You know that God abides in you when you love your brothers. So this, these, these five little words... Four little words. There's only four. Other translation has five. Uh, they are rich with the presence of God. And it's for us to explore, but not to explore only in the heavenlies. And I'm all for going to the heavenlies. We were in Ascension this week where we globetrotted for about an hour. It's awesome. But we can see this become a settled issue in our life. And again, I want to remind you, the redemptive plan of God and the government of God, it's built for us. So when I look at some political leader who is absolutely bald-faced lying and, 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 and throwing out the most hateful, untrue, divisive rhetoric, my challenge is to believe the reality of this covenant and that love. And you know what? I'm not perfect at it. But if I'll slow down a little bit and not just react, take a deep breath, speak the name of Jesus in a question, like, Lord, the way I'm feeling right now, I don't think is how you see this. How do you see it? A few minutes. If I shut the video down or turn the radio off, in a few minutes, I'll feel a peace it literally goes beyond understanding. It goes beyond anything I could do to make sense of what I just heard. I think that's the power of the new covenant. I think that is the power of the kingdom of God being released 
through the new covenant to me. I think that's an understanding of the awesome, invincible, unapproachable, irreducible power of its king to love while being accused, to love while being hated, to love from the cross, where the only thing squeezed out of him was blood and a declaration. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's that's our kingdom here. That's this covenant. The goal of this covenant, you know, like Paul says uh, one time in Timothy, I think, uh, first Timothy, it says the goal of our instruction is love from a sincere heart. Love. We might need to comfort one another, saying, and encourage one another, provoke one another. What does it say in Hebrews 10? To love in good deeds. Because we have a new and living way to get into this place. You see what is, see how this is, can expand if you'll meditate on it, talk about it. If you'll sit down with somebody, have a cup of coffee and say, let's talk about how love might go. What does it mean in Hebrews 10 to, to, to encourage one another and provoke one another to love and good deeds? Well, I don't know. Let's tackle it at this level and talk. And then let's pray and let's see. Hey, Greg. Hey, Abby. All right. Next one. Do not neglect hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, I never thought about this in terms of the new covenant and what it opens up to us. But when you reflect back on Hebrews 12, the thing that I opened in review, all of a sudden we have come to this amazing place full of angels and spiritual people made perfect and God the judge of all and Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Even Abel's blood is is still around to talk to us and to be bettered by the blood of Jesus. Don't neglect, I'm going to add the word simple, hospitality to strangers because some have entertained angels unaware. When I was younger, uh, the only way I could interpret this verse and attach any meaning to it was that Abraham, for instance, entertained those the the three the, the angels and the Lord, angel of the Lord, or that you know uh, that kind of stuff. Now I realize that's true, that's part of it, but I realize that le- literally we can interface with heaven. We can have encounters by just a simple act of hey, can I offer you a cup of coffee? And I'm not even being metaphorical. That's a good thing to do between two people of this room. One of my brothers or sisters. One of your brothers or sisters. But we don't know. Hospitality, the simple act of being gracious and opening our home like Holly and Jennifer do and and like Zeke gets the benefit of having people traipse through his house all the time. (laughs) Do you guys, are are you sure you haven't had an angel pass through? Sure, we have. This is the nature of our kingdom, you know? It's not just leave the door open. There are times uh, when I miss my early childhood. Jason, you probably remember this in Texas. You don't lock your doors. At least you didn't used to. You probably do now. You don't lock your doors. People come in, open screen door, say, hey, walk over, get a Dr. Pepper out of the refrigerator, or get a beer, whatever the family's got to offer. Sits there and waits while you come out in your bathrobe because you just got out of the shower. <laughs> you know, it's, that's, that was hospitality to me. It wasn't always a formal kind of thing. We moved to California, and, and uh, hospitality involved knowing somebody was coming over with a call, and you know, rushed around real quick and vacuumed and cleaned up the house. 
Okay, I'm, I'm okay with either kind. But what I'm saying is in the kingdom, hospitality cuts across species, ethnos, creatureliness. And it allows us to be visited by angels and to interact with living creatures. Giraffe, maybe. Those encounters are rare here, but they could happen. Now I have a picture at the zoo of one of those big giraffes leaning over the fence and licking you on the top of your head with that black tongue about that long. <laughs> this is the nature of the New Covenant. This is what it opens up to us. This is why I like calling it a, uh, a culture. I had a study on Tuesday before our regular study with uh, friends from the East Coast. And, and one of the gals said, why does God need a covenant? Why can't he just love us? And I said, he doesn't need a covenant. We do. We need to know what to expect. He knows what to expect. We need to know what's coming. And that what's coming is stuff like this in that culture of love. Does that make sense? This is practical. Open your home. Buy somebody dinner. Stop alongside the road. Touch somebody's life. Remember those in chains as though you were chained with them. Those maltreated as though you too were yourself in the body. For all the spiritual and mystical glory of the outpoured blood of Jesus, not on a tabernacle made by hands, but in the heavenlies, of which that earthly tabernacle was merely a shadow, all of that comes down to this the ability to love and to identify with people. One translation says, uh, you know, think of those in prison and remember them as if you were in prison with them. Think of those who are mistreated, maltreated, as though you too, you were yourself in your own body. The new covenant, whether people know it or not, is the culture that fuels all the work about prison ministry, all the work about sex trafficking ministry, all the work about that kind of stuff, all the work about, uh, that, that it deals with orphanages and all those sorts of things. It's really special. It's really precious. And if we know, if we know, think about this. So let's say that uh, we start to remember those that are in change or we start to remember those that are in bondage. We remember women whose hands are tied behind their back and they're in trucks being taken away by a slave trafficker, a sex trafficker. This same covenant is the one that reminds us that by faith we know that God created the world out of that which was not. We may not be able to puzzle our way through how to solve that problem and rescue those women. We may open up our house to a think tank and unbeknownst to us, an angel is one of the strategists. This is the nature of the new covenant. This is where we live. This is who we who we are as Christians, people engaged in the kingdom, but not in some abstract way. And, and I don't, I don't in any way want to minimize the kingdom. I was thrilled that that Monday prayer meeting was about the kingdom. It was, and, the, and, and, and they were, they were, everybody was using the best language they had. You know, in other words, we need to stop thinking like the church and start thinking like the kingdom. We can't just build our church. We have to try to build the kingdom. I understood it and I loved it and I was blessed, but I honestly feel like we have a bit of a head start on some of this stuff that's a little bit broader and a little bit 
has a little bit more potential than just, okay, we've got a puzzle over what's just church and what's just kingdom. No. We have access to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To the outpouring of the blood of Jesus on an altar in heaven. To the mysteries of God that Paul says in, in uh, was it 1 Corinthians chapter 2? That eyes not seen and ears not heard what God's promised for those, but the Spirit's revealing it. That's the new covenant. That's just over the next little hill. We're free to, to explore it because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. And the king has poured out his blood and declared with his father, this is my government. It's resting on my shoulders. It's powerful. We can tackle any injustice. They're trying to do that in the streets now. Racial injustice. They're probably provoked to do it by the light that is in them. But it's it's difficult to get a good application. But if we'll start living in, releasing, and believing in this covenant, we can find answers to that. I've heard some stories of things that have happened that are magnificent, wonderful, where people are able to get and ask the right question at the right time and know that there's spiritual horsepower behind it. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of failing at? All of a sudden it opens the door. Stuff like that. Make sense? Let marriage be honored by all in the marriage bed undefiled, for God will judge the whoring and the adulterers. I love David Bentley Hart's book. He gets right to the point on those negatives. <laughs> I think that in a very simple and practical way, this is an admonition for men and women to honor their marriage covenants, for sure. I also think that uh, it is a revelation that God takes that seriously. And I reflect back on Paul when he's talking about marriage between a man and a woman, and he says, uh, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking to you of Christ in the church. Then I reflect back on Israel as a whole, and this whole idea of violating the, the covenant with God in the name or being called uh, a form of adultery that led to exile. This is an age-long problem. The answer is in the new covenant. The answer starts in the simple physical manifestation of it, should we be married? It answers, uh, it, it, it speaks of the, of the intimacy of the relationship and the covenantal nature of it between us if we're single and God. It speaks, I think, of friendships and those kind of covenants as well. But this is how practical, but it is in no way, no pun intended, divorced from the heavenly realm, the angels, the roles of those in heaven. Okay? Practical enough? This is a practical one too. Uh, let it be your way to be devoid of any fondness for money, being satisfied with whatever things are present, for he has himself said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. So we are emboldened to say, the Lord is a helper to me. I will not be afraid. What shall a human being do to me? Now, I took some liberty, and I'm sure I did not 
exhaust the meaning of this in that little subtitle, false trust of money or fear of people. But what I'm saying is that uh, the temptation to be vexed over money or the opposite temptation, if you have a lot, to be satisfied with it and to give it divine weight, we are freed from in this by the presence of the very king. Did I not tell you, I would never leave you or forsake you. So, I'm not going to be worried. I'm not going to be tempted and defined by it. And what shall another human being be able to do to me? How much, how much net passion and desire among humanity has been suppressed because they thought they couldn't afford it or they couldn't risk the funds to do it or what would people say? Honest to goodness, if the only thing we were freed from in the new covenant by the blood of Jesus was the fear of what would they say if I did it, our lives could be transformed. This is how practical this covenant is. This is how far-reaching. How, how, how far could God use us if we didn't fear a lack of money? How far could God use us if we weren't afraid of what people would say? And we can sometimes couch it and, oh, they won't understand. And sometimes, what if I fail? What if you do? You'll be a person who stumbles in the presence of Jesus. That's as bad as it gets. That's as bad as it gets. If you run out of money because you're, you've, you've extended your faith and you're trying, what you'll be is a person who is in need of money in the presence of the one who sent Peter to pull a coin out of a fish's mouth. Now, I only live about 15% of what I just said, but I'm here to testify to you that when God put the new covenant and the redemptive components together, he had that hypocrisy in me in mind. And so I can stand here and tell you, I can learn. I can learn because yesterday and today and tomorrow is the same. It even says that in just a little bit here. We'll get to it. So we are emboldened to say the Lord is a helper to me. So, Ronnie, you have uh, moved how many tons of dirt? About 10 tons. Okay, so Ronnie has having to haul some dirt around from the higher part of his property down around the back of his house or side of his house to the lower part. He's doing it by a wheelbarrow, and the thought of shoveling and moving 10, 15 tons of dirt is quite a task. I don't know if you've taken comfort in the fact of knowing that the Lord is a helper to you. And I don't know if you know how to take advantage of it, but I would just provoke you to think about it, love and good deeds. On something that might seem a little more difficult, have any of you recently asked, how can things turn around in the vitriol of our country? How can this anarchist uh, movement be quelled? How, once, once people have tasted rebellious power, 
How can it be withdrawn? When, once people have gotten a hold, let's say some of our governors or something through the COVID thing, once they've gotten hold of this sort of unchecked power to control the lives and the finances and the, the movements of people, how do they give it up? Well, could it be that in a culture of brotherly love that we can find in our, our hearts to pray for them to have revelation? instead of just to be angry with them and call them the names I've called them. Yes. Yes. It is easier to call them names. It's probably even more fun at first. Huh? Like blessed to the Lord. See, now there's a transitional statement that could come, because they are, right? Right? Uh, Governor Polis, I thank you. and I, I mean, I thank God that you have Jesus as a helper. It's a way to talk. It's a way to think. Change. Okay? Uh, the Lord is a helper to me. I will not be afraid. What shall a human being do to me? So see, some of these, these difficult things find context in this covenant. And I like thinking about the covenant from time to time as a place, as a country. And I remember the first time I taught about it, I said, if you were to go down to our southern border and you were born 10 miles north of the border and another person was born 10 miles south of the border, this person has a culture and a set of laws and a set of privileges and opportunities that are entirely different in a lot of ways than the one that's 10 miles north. The people are the same, and they're of the same value. And they don't know, when they're young, the difference. But the reality is there, and that's the way the New Covenant is, the culture of the New Covenant. We are, in this covenant, born from above into privilege that is extraordinary. We are born into having already received Zion and all that's going on there. And we are born into a place that is fueled by the blood of Christ today after day after day. Let us receive an unshakable kingdom. We have to believe that when our stuff's shaking. But we can't. It's our covenant privilege. Okay? Okay, so this is uh, a chunk of passages. Spiritual life versus religious life. I hope I've done justice by summarizing it that way, because this uh, this starts out talking by, remember your leaders who spoke God's word to you, contemplated the results of their conduct, imitate their faithfulness. Jesus the anointed is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That was the, or yesterday, today, and into the ages. That's the passage I wanted to tell you about, the steadfastness of this kingdom, the steadfastness of this covenant. Remember your leaders, God's, uh, who spoke God's word to you. Contemplate the results of their conduct and imitate their faithfulness. I don't want to make too much of this, but all of the weird, hierarchical abuse that goes on in church and that goes on in trying to sort out the significance of apostolic and prophetic callings and all that kind of stuff, all of that would be changed if the simple admonition of verse 7 was the order of the day in church. Are you supposed to bow down to me, put me on a pedestal as your leader, as a person who speaks the word to you? No. I'm supposed to be here doing what God's got me doing in the culture and in the kingdom, and you're supposed to think about it. It's no more complicated than that. That's the nature of this covenant. Because I don't have control over your standing in it. 
I have no way to leverage over you. Do this and you belong. Don't do this and you don't. Unfortunately, religion has done that for a long time. That's why I'm comparing spiritual life. Spiritual life is where you can look with admiration at the people who serve you. Religious life is where you have to look at them in fear or some kind of false reverence. The New Covenant is not full of that. There's only one king in the New Covenant. There's only one priest. We get to serve in him and with him. Jesus the Anointed. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be made firm by grace, not by food, which do not profit those who are occupied with them. We have an altar of sacrifice from which those who worship in the tabernacle have no authorization to eat. The, uh, the other aspect of this, we're going to see it in the next couple of verses, is that religious life is inwardly focused. And it finds expression in what you do and what you don't do. It finds expression in various rituals. I don't think in and of themselves any of those things are necessarily bad. But they draw the focus in, and we're going to see in just a second, that the New Covenant draws the focus out. Okay? Watch this. For the bodies of those animals whose blood on behalf of sin is brought into the Holy of Holies by the high priest are burned outside the camp. Thus, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might make the people holy by his own blood. Jesus' trip with the blood into the, into the tabernacle, into that holy place was done in heaven, not in the shadow of one done by men. In the realm of men, he was carried outside the gate. He was crucified outside the gate. His blood was poured out outside the gate. And we are encouraged to go outside the gate. If Jesus had been crucified in the tabernacle, which I know would never happen in that culture, in that religion, but if he had been crucified in there, I could see how the focus would still remain in there. But he was crucified out there. Now, he had just as much of an effect in there. As a matter of fact, he sanctified all that stuff in the extreme when he poured his own blood out in the tabernacle not made by hands. But he went out. And the beauty of spiritual life is that it is faced out. I used to always have a trouble uh, with, with this one song. You guys might know it. I don't know all the words to it. But it, it said, uh, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. We sang it as a Baptist. I sang it as a Pentecostal. I remember not understanding why it upset me and confused me. But I would sometimes, back in the day, reverse the words, and I would say, the cross behind me and the world before me. And I, I did it in the name of like evangelism or something. So let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing the reproach directed to him, for we have no abiding city, but instead seek the one about to come. Praise God. Through him, therefore, let us always offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. This is the fruit of lips, confessing his name. And do not neglect beneficence and communal ownership. For with such sacrifices, God is delighted. I'll be honest with you, we're not big in America on communal ownership. You see pictures of it in the book of Acts where the apostles shared everything in common, lived together. But a form of it, I think, is that we've 
we help support these guys and help get them in tuition for their kids and stuff like that. So it's kind of fun. Comply with and submit to your leaders, for they stand vigil on behalf of your souls as men who render an account. This is a, the second part of that that tells me that the hypocrisy and the hierarchy and the manipulation and the control that goes on among some church lives doesn't exist in the kingdom. That if people have a position over you in any meaning of that word, it is because they stand vigil for your souls as one that have to give an account for God. And God help me to be a guy like that in this kingdom and in this covenant. Because they may do this with joy and not groaning, for the latter is profitless before you. So here we are. A lasting act of impact, impactful culture of love, hospitality that connects us to the kingdom of heaven, identification with the struggle of our neighbors, esteem and sanctification of marriage and family, freedom from false security, love of money and fear of people, and engaging spiritual life in place of religious life. That is the practicality of the new covenant that we can live in every day. And then lastly, it's peace from Jesus. It's right here. Now may the God of peace, who by blood of the covenant for the ages has led the great shepherd of the flocks up from the dead, our Lord Jesus. Just one thing that that verse makes me think about. Jesus said, I have other sheep from other folds. Who by the blood of the covenant of the ages has led the great shepherd of the flocks up from the dead, our Lord Jesus. May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. This is the foundational structure and promise of the new covenant. That God will give you and you and you and you and me every, every thing good for doing his will. So when he speaks to you, know that he will provide so that you can say yes and succeed. He will say, he will do it. Equip you with every good thing for doing his will, making within us what is delightful before him. Through Jesus the anointed, to whom be the glory of the ages. Amen. Let me read that one phrase again, because if we could capture that, I think it would sum up why we have the assurance of little children with a good father. Equip you with every good thing for doing his will, making within us what is delightful before him through Jesus the anointed. Oh God, I want to please you. Oh, no problem. I'm going to make in you everything necessary to cause me to delight in you. And I'm going to do it through Jesus. You understand how that changes the whole tension of responsibility to serve the Lord? The new covenant is a place where you should be assured as a child that you are loved and accepted where sin has no ability to separate you or cause you anxiety before the Father. Now, you may feel the pressure of failure and need to run to him and say, I'm sorry, I know that's not what I was about. That's not who I am. But this is the new covenant. And this statement here is bizarre. It's it's the primary reason I use David Bentley Hart in this. Making within us. So what is the process for discipleship? What is the process for transformation? It's allowing God to make within me and within you 
the very things that cause him to delight in us. And let's go back to the beginning of the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the fathers understood that God made everything that was out of what was not. There's no deficit in your life or my life in the new covenant that can stand in the way of our being a delight to God. Because he himself, creator ex nihilo, makes it in us. That's why I think the scripture can say amen. <laughs> amen. Remaining Zoomers, I've talked a little while and we had a phone call from the Middle East. What an amazing thing. I want to apologize to you guys that we don't have the other station set up to do breakout rooms yet, but next week we will. Any thoughts, any questions from any of you? Comments? That was good, brother. That's what it's all about. Excellent. Excellent. Anybody else? Thank you, Alan. Well, Father, I want to I want to bless these guys. I thank you for them. I thank you for everybody that was on Zoom tonight. I thank you for everybody that was here. I do. Because we're talking about what's practical about this amazing covenant that is forged from the blood of Jesus, poured out literally in the heavenly. We're talking about a covenant that is big enough to embrace our lives and our mistakes and our needs and the spirits of righteous men made perfect, God the judge of the ages, Jesus the uh, administer of a new covenant, myriad upon myriad of angels in festival, <laughs> in the holy heavens. Open our eyes and assure our hearts of our place before you in the new covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. God bless. And bless you guys. Um, that's it, I guess. Just let it be as practical and as powerful as it is. And... Uh, Yes, sir. Do you think the eyes of our heart, when Scripture talks about the eyes mm -hmm. of our heart, does that equal imagination? I think imagination plays a role in the eyes of our heart. I do. I don't think it's so. Like all in of ascen it. ascensions and trips to heaven, part of that. Is Isn't opening the eyes of our heart. I think so, yeah. And then, you know, the other thing, as a man thinks in his heart, and so I think the eyes of our heart also give vision to the things we think. Just like, you know, just like, and so that would be like imagination. I think sometimes people are afraid to say yes to imagination being playing a role in this relationship because it's like we're making something up out of nothing. But... uh Every everything that was built, this little remote, it was conceived of in the imagination of somebody at first. And I do believe that the the fact that the Holy Spirit makes room for Jesus to live in our heart, and Jesus brings his full knowledge of us and the Father and the universe and himself as creator, how could it not involve us using our capacity that he created us with for imagination to add shape to the things he says and reveals? So, yes. And 
Can you share that other thing you got from the pre-meeting on Tuesday with the rest of the people here? Not without remembering it. It was about Jesus. I'm sure it was. <laughs> and um, being and contrast with the as the word. Oh, okay. Do you guys want to give me five more or not? not it won't even be five minutes. It's good. Doesn't I need to. Um, you don't need five minutes. You only need like two. No, it's real quick. I got I got stunned. I got I got really rattled in a positive way. It's in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so I had to study with the guys back on the East Coast and found, uh, shared something with me. I had never seen it. It's out of Genesis 15 where God visits Abraham and says, I'll be your very great reward. The reason I didn't see it was because I was preoccupied my entire life for the last few years with the stunning revelation that God had said, I'm going to be your reward. Okay? But Genesis chapter 15... So I'm sitting there listening and Fount's teaching and talking. He goes, hey, here's a word that, or a verse that, that really is special. And I go, oh, okay. So you know the, you know the verse I'm talking about? It's the beginning, John, uh, or, uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Thanks, Ronnie. I, this is worth sharing. So I want you to listen closely to something. So here it is. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying... All right, let me read it again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, <laughs> do you get it? The word of the Lord. When we think of the prophetic word of the Lord coming, it would be like the word of the Lord came through the prophet, right? But no. After these things, the word of the Lord you know, Jesus with that tattoo down his leg, the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield for you. Your reward is very great. And Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? And he got into the dialogue about his kid. That's the first reference that I have heard of where Jesus, the word of the Lord, was manifest as somebody saying and speaking and relating to Abram. Now, Abraham responded, and for those of you that have been with me when I taught about Genesis years ago, you remember that God was called Elohim in Genesis 1, and he was called Jehovah Elohim in Genesis 2, the Lord God, that's what this is. The God with a name. Well, the God I know that has a name that name is Jesus or Yeshua. That was awesome. The word of the Lord, not some vague picture, prophetic. The word of the Lord came and then the word of the Lord said. And then I responded to the word of the Lord and I said, Jehovah Elohim, how is this going to be? That interaction is the first of its kind in the, in the book. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Well, Father, let that settle in our hearts. Jesus, thank you for uh, being the same yesterday and today and for the ages. Amen.